being from South Carolina, the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in the larger uh, chain of mountains that runs down the East Coast, the Appalachian Mountains, we don't know much about tall mountains. It's a thing. They're more like hills, but to us, they're very important. They're like tall mountains. If you grew up in Colorado or the Pacific Northwest, you know mountains. Nevertheless, when I was in college, we, uh, a group of us uh, took a weekend excursion to North Carolina to go to Grandfather Mountain. Now, several things are notable about this sto- uh, the story straight at the outset, which is one, yes, I have been hiking. No, I don't enjoy it. I have the knees of an 80-year-old. It's not the going up the mountain that's the problem. It's the coming back down and all the impact. And by the time you get back down, the knees look like basketballs. But that was more information than you needed. Um, Grandfather Mountain is famous for having a large suspension bridge that, um, that connects one part of the mountain to another. And that's normally the draw that would get most people and families to go to Grandfather Mountain. But we know, friends, we were more brave than that. It was not simply the glorious suspension bridge that brought us to our adventure that day. No, it was the hike up to the summit of Grandfather Mountain. And so we had planned a day, packed a lunch, and gone. By the time we got up to the top, it was getting rockier and less green and much more windy In fact, as we got towards the end, there was just some ropes that were anchored down into the rocks themselves so that you wouldn't slip and fall and have a very unfortunate stop at the end of your fall. It was so windy atop the summit that we had to lay down so as to not get blown over by the wind because the wind was blowing so fiercely that day. Mountains inspire all sorts of imagery. And here in our text this morning, we see, again, a reference made to mountains. So we need to talk about that. Now, I know that, um, so one of the things that I love about um, our church is that we have uh, uh, folks of all ages in here. Um, We have uh, the most seasoned to the most brand new in the world. So I want to give just a quick moment for all of the little guys Um, the young folks that are listening this morning. So kids, there are three things that I want you to listen for this morning in the sermon that I want you to talk to your mom and dad about later in terms of what they mean. Are you ready? Here's the first thing. I want you to listen for me to tell a story um, about uh, play money. I want you to listen for a story about a truck. And I I want you to listen for a story about hope on a mountain. All right, so those things, three things again. Are you ready? First thing I want you to listen for is a story about play money. I want you to listen for a story about a truck. And the third thing is I want you to listen for a story about hope on the mountain. Now, for uh, those of you who don't need uh, those kind of um, marks in the road about what illustrations might be used this morning, we're going to cover three things in our text. We're going to look at, um, we're going to look at the promise of restoration. We're going to look at the uh, picture of restoration. And finally, we're going to look at uh, the experience of restoration. It's a shorter text this morning. We've been going chapter by chapter. We're going to slow down a little bit and just look at the first five verses of Micah chapter four. So stand if you would. Listen, for, listen to God's word. 
It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as I was reminded this week, by one of our preachers at General Assembly. He drew to mind the picture of Ezekiel preaching to dry bones. And the dry bones began to rattle and they began to come together. And as he began to preach some more, sinew and tissue began to form. And then the word of the Lord came to him and said, call for the wind. Call for the breath of heaven. Call for the wind. And so, Father, this day, as I uh, seek to be obedient to you and preach to the bones, would the wind of heaven blow and bring life and bring Christ and bring grace to us this day so that we would see Jesus in him only. For we ask all these things in his name. Amen. Be seated if you would. I want to look first at the promise, the promise of restoration. Um, If you've been playing along at home, you know that Micah so far has been fairly bleak. There's not been a whole lot of hope. In fact, there wasn't a lot of introduction even as Micah began his declaration of the word of God to the people of God in Micah chapter 1. It began as a court summons. Now's the first time, really, in our text that a word of peace, a word of hope is um, beginning to crack forth in the midst of all the things that Micah is saying. So here's what it says. There is a time coming when the house of the Lord will be established. So let's, let's define a few terms, okay? First of all, To say that something is coming, to say that something is coming in the latter days doesn't mean it's an end time revelation eschatology thing. It just means it's happening at some point in the future and the prophet doesn't know when, okay? So this is not some sort of call out to say that when all of this stuff starts unfolding from revelation, whatever shape that ends up taking, 
Because some could argue that it's already happening, but that's a different conversation. In the latter days, Micah says, there is going to be hope that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It's going to come, hope is going to come through the mountain of the Lord. So when the Bible talks about mountains, it's not just talking about scenic and picturesque peaks. It's talking about something more. There's something deeply and profoundly theological going on in these discussions. So for instance, if you remember in Exodus, when God gave the law to Moses, where did Moses go to receive God's law? Went to Mount Sinai. Because I had to make a second trip because apparently there was a defect in the first and they got, anyway, um, wasn't a defect in the law. There's people. Micah here refers to Mount Zion as the place where God dwells in the midst of his people. So the mountain in the scriptures, the mountain is both the place where God rules and where God dwells. Okay? So there is law and there is also uh, there's also presence. Okay? And these are important concepts for us to hang on to. Because if you look in verse 2, you see that this is where the mountain of the Lord is equated with the house of the God of Jacob. And this is saying that there's coming a day when the dwelling place of God is going to be on Mount Zion. And there's a poetic structure going on here, isn't there? Because in much of the uh, Old Testament, especially in the wisdom literature and in the Psalms, We see this poetic structure take place where something is stated and then restated in a slightly different way in order to accentuate and make a point. So how does this fit? How does this fit in the overall context of Micah? Well, let me remind you really quickly about where we've been thus far. In chapter 1, we saw that there was rampant idolatry going on amidst the people of God. And I want you to remember this because we've talked a lot, because it's a really core biblical concept. We've talked a lot about idolatry, but we tend to talk about idolatry in its technical terms. That is to say, it is taking a potentially even good thing and elevating it to an ultimate thing, okay? That is a technical definition of idolatry. But if you'll remember, Micah did something else when he talked about the idolatry of the people of God. He actually called it something akin to prostitution, He called it adultery. So not only is there a technical aspect of idolatry, there's a relational aspect as well. Idolatry uh, is akin to adultery. It is saying that you want the benefits of your relationship with God, but you want something else too to help satisfy you. And that's a problem. In chapter 2, we saw that oppression was everywhere because even though the people were doing legal things, okay, now there are some that do illegal things and are oppressive to the people of God, but here we looked at the people doing legal things, things they were allowed to do. They were answering the can we question. Can we do this? Yes, you can, Okay. But the problem that the prophet had is that it was still leaving exposed the weakest and the most vulnerable of the society 
to fall under oppression. And you see, friends, the Bible does not call us as citizens, both of this earth and citizens of the kingdom, to merely answer the question, can I do something? The Bible calls us to a much higher standard. It's not just can I, but should I? Even if it's legal and the law of the land doesn't conflict with Holy Scripture. You see, the Bible calls us to a higher standard. And so the question of should I do something is much more important for us to ask. So we saw oppression going on in chapter 2. And then uh, two weeks ago in chapter 3, we talked about power systems. We talked about power struggles. We talked about how God had put in place the leaders, both the civic leaders and the religious leaders of Micah's day. God had placed those leaders in place for a specific task. And I said that task was to attend to the flourishing of God's people. And now I know that that word flourishing can sound like a a new agey, pie in the sky, uh, social renovation project word. And so I drew your attention to the fact, and this was largely pulling from Andy Crouch's book, Playing God, that for us, we tend to read a truncated Bible. Everybody does it, but uh, we focus on a truncated Bible. And for many Christians, the way that this works is we start in Genesis 3 with fall, and we end in Revelation 20 with judgment. But that is neither where the Bible starts nor the Bible finishes. The Bible starts in Genesis 1 with God's good creation and then God giving humanity, that is you and I, that is image bearers of the image and name of Jesus, the authority to cultivate, to tend to, and to bring about the, uh, the fruitfulness and flourishing of God's good creation. Now, Genesis 3 does come in and fall is introduced into the equation. The good creation has been marred by sin. Image bearers, that is you and I, have been corrupted to our very core by sin. There is nothing good in us. There is nothing in us that brings us any sort of merit or right or standing to go before God. But God sent a rescuer. And through Jesus, for those who put their faith and their hope and their trust in the name of Jesus and in the work that he has accomplished on our behalf, there is a restoration that begins. And that restoration in us is then setting us free to attend to this cultivation of this global empire that God is building. A picture of a garden is much too small. It's not a garden any longer. It's a global empire. And the problem that Micah had in Micah chapter 3, as he brought um, the word of God against both the religious and the civic leaders, was that they were doing none of that. They were using their position to exercise power. If you remember in Micah 3, the the prophet said uh, of the other professional prophets of his day, hey, when someone puts a hot meal in front of you, you preach, oh, peace, peace. Everything's good. Thank you for the dinner. But when there's no food put in front of you, you preach war. (laughs) Your message changes depending upon whether or not your belly's getting full. And Micah said, this cannot be. 
So this is where we've been. So I'll ask you again, how does this text fit in the midst of all of that? Simple. Um, There's not been a single inkling of good news, but now, now we have something to go on. The promise of restoration involves both God's presence and his rule. God will show up. And God will make things right. So how does this promise bring concrete good news? Because promises are only as good as the one who made the promise. Do you understand that? Promises are only as good as the one who made the promise. For instance, I can promise the world to my kids. Samantha, my youngest child, is my, uh, my only little girl. Um, she is the blonde-haired, blue-eyed ones, and she's figured all this out. She knows that her daddy comes running any time that she falls and skins her knee. And I have joked before, as you have looked at me and said, she has you wrapped around her finger, doesn't she? I said, yes, she does. If she asks for a Porsche 911, we'll figure it out. I don't have the money for this. I don't know where to buy one. I don't even know what a two and a half year old would do with one. But I can't make those types of promises, can I? Because the promise is only good as the one making the promise. And as much as I'd like to give my daughter the world, there are limits. But, but God, it's very, very important in the midst of us, for us um, and our neighbors, those who are in the midst of oppression, idolatry, injustice, that long for the visitation of God on high would be assured of who exactly it is that's making the promises. Is he good? Is he trustworthy? Is he able to actually deliver on what he says he's going to do? There's a striking resemblance, by the way, of our text this morning um, to another prophet, Zephaniah. This is one of my most favorite texts in the Old Testament. It's Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Listen to it. Zephaniah says, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Notice notice with me what happens in this text from Zephaniah. The Lord is the one that takes away judgments. The Lord is the one that clears away enemies. The king is in your midst and he isn't just around, but he's near. And this is what he does. He rejoices over you with gladness and he quiets you with his love and he exults over you with loud singing. There is nothing about this text or any other text in the Bible that exalts something that we would do to come into God's presence to earn any of this. No, this is God's gracious love for his people. This is what God does. This is who God is. Because you'll remember, as we talked about with idolatry, the opposite 
of love isn't anger. The opposite of love is indifference. If God didn't love us, he wouldn't care what we do. He'd blow us away. But instead, because God loves us, he sends prophets and he sends poets and he sends priests and he sends kings and ultimately he sent his son to rescue us because he loves us. So God bids us to come to the mountain through his prophet. Our response is simply to be brought into what he has done for us. How? How is God going to establish his rule? There's, there are places in Scripture that speak of this, but one most poignant place is in Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. This is what the prophet says about how God is going to establish both his presence and his rule. Listen to what it says. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Because God is good and he does what is good, we can believe the truth of the promise maker. When, when I was little, I don't know why, I was fascinated with play money. Um, I think it was because, um, I, well, I blame Monopoly in part for this. Um, but I would sit in my room and I had a little banker's lamp, one of the green, uh, green glass with the brass. Sta- I had a banker's lamp on my desk, that was my desk lamp. This is more information than you needed or I wanted to give. At any rate, um, and so I would take play money and I would, uh, I would write um, big uh, business transactions with my stuffed animals. My bear had a bow tie on, okay? He was a big mogul. And I felt like I was rolling in it because I had a million dollar bill. A million dollar bill. And you know what it says on it, right? Not legal tender. (laughs) Play money only. See, that's the thing. The million dollar bill wasn't legal tender. It couldn't come through on the promise that it made. But our God, our God has never once broken his promises. And never once failed to deliver what he said he would do. When he promises that something will be done, it's done. All right, so that's promise of redemption. Second thing, uh, picture of restoration. All right, picture of restoration. So the promise of restoration is good only because the one who's making the promise and his ability to come through on his word, not the actual promise itself, right? It all hinges on the one who's making the promise and whether or not he has the ability to do it. But here's the second thing we see. It's the picture of restoration. Look at verse 3 of Micah 4. Verse 3 says, He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So look at what it says. Many peoples and strong nations far away will be brought together. God will bring justice 
Those swords that they were bringing, those swords have been turned into plowshares. Those spears, now pruning hooks. Now, uh, beyond just a picture of it, this is, just, this is more than just a picture of a cessation of violence. It's something else entirely. What were formerly instruments of war are now instruments of cultivation. What was once used to take life will now be used to sustain life. What was once a picture of death is now a provision of life. There will be no reason for conflict to the point that no one will wish to learn war anymore. But there's something else that I want you to see. Because you've already heard me mention that chapter 1 read like a illegal summons, right? Chapter 1 read like a legal summons where people were being um, served court papers with an indictment. But look at what Micah does here. There was sharp imagery in chapter 1 of the terrible ways that God would bring judgment against the nation. But look at this comparison. Um, If you have your Bible and you want to flip back and forth between one and four, you can, or you can just listen. I'll read it to you. In chapter one, verse three, the Lord will tread upon the high places. But look at what happens in chapter four, verse two. The house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. In chapter 1, verse 4, the mountains will melt under him. But in chapter 4, verse 2, it is the mountain of the Lord. In chapter 1, verse 7, carved images shall be beaten into pieces. But in chapter 4, verse 3, we see this. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. Now, here's what I want you to see that's going on here. The hope of restoration is not just a bloodbath of judgment followed by evacuation to some distant place. God's solution to the brokenness of this world is not evacuation, but restoration. God makes all things new, not all new things. I've said that before, but I'll say it again. God makes all things new, not all new things. Our hope is not in removal, but uh, renewal. Not evisceration, but restoration and renovation. And all of this is going to break forth from the midst of what we are presently experiencing in all of the darkness and in all of the chaos and in all of the sadness and in all of the bleakness, this promise is going to break forth from the midst of what we are experiencing even now. And that's the way that God works. It's slowly. It's molecule by molecule, not universe by universe. I heard this week uh, during one of the assembly sermons that what if, uh, what if Jesus doesn't return for another 10,000 years? Do, do you realize what that means? That means that we're the early church. Someone's going to be sitting on a theology exam taking their church history class in RTS Tibet or wherever 
So you're going, ah, early church father, what is it, Athanasius? Is it, a, is it Aquinas? Is it Tim Keller? Like, which of the church fathers? I can't keep them straight. The fact that God is working slowly doesn't mean that he's not working at all. So as Jen and I finished our uh, renovation project, one of the last decisions that we had to make in the process was about our baseboards. The baseboards were dinged, they were dented, they were chunks missing out of some of them. We were thinking about how our carpenter was going to be not the least bit happy with us if he was told to make the baseboards like new, you know, like restoring them to, the, restoring them to their 1991 glory. <laughs> I've been watching too much HDTV. <laughs> so instead what we did is we ripped them out. We put in all new ones. It makes the house look great, but that's not restoration. Do you see the difference? God's doing the hard work. He's not just ripping out the broken and ugly stuff and putting in new and shiny stuff. No, that's what gives me hope. Because you see, I don't deserve to be in among the new shiny stuff. But God's more concerned with restoration than replacement. He isn't discarding the old for the sake of something new. He's bringing the glory, dignity, worth, and beauty out of the old by making it new. So, you got the promise, you got the picture. What about the experience? How are we going to experience this? There's a lot of places in the Old Testament that we can see this. We can see a shadow of it. But we need to look to other mountains. We need to look to other mountains in the rest of Scripture to see the fullness of our hope. In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 12, the author writing predominantly to a Jewish crowd says this in Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Now listen, in Hebrews, the author is using the allusion to Mount Zion as a reference to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of God made about how he will rule Jerusalem and dwell with Jerusalem and give people his law and give people his presence. But, but we, should, we should feel this tension. That's great, but, but we've come to Jesus, but we still experience the brokenness, the fallenness, the pettiness, and the relentlessness of this world. And it isn't just all around us, but right here inside of us too. We are an oppressive people. We are an idolatrous people. We are a people that exercise power in unhealthy and unbiblical ways because we ultimately don't trust the provision of the promise maker. 
So how do we get reconciled? It's, it's by Jesus on the mountain. There's a, there's a story that Tim Keller shares in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, about the former minister of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, a man by the name of Dr. Barn, uh, Donald Barnhouse. Dr. Barnhouse's wife died while their daughter was still very young, and he was trying to come up with an illustration to help her understand what had happened to his wife and her mom. One day they were in the car, and while they were on the highway, a huge truck passed by them, and the shadow of the truck swept over the car. Dr. Barnhouse asked his daughter, if you were to get hit by the truck, would you prefer that you get hit by the truck itself or get hit by the shadow of the truck? And she answered, oh, daddy the shadow of the truck rather than the truck itself because it won't hurt as much. He responded to her along these lines. That's exactly what happened to your mother. The shadow of the truck of judgment, of death, came over your mother, but she is still alive. She's actually more alive than we are. She's in the presence of God and we will see her someday. You need to understand that only the shadow of the judgment of death went over her, but the truck of the judgment of death crushed Jesus. The crushing judgment of the truck ran over Jesus, so only the shadow will go over us, your mother, and all who place their faith in him. How do we know? that God will keep his promise and that we will dwell under his rule. It's here. God's son hung upon a cross at Calvary on the side of Mount Zion. There is an empty tomb on the side of that same mountain. And this is what Jesus accomplished through his life and his death and his resurrection. His resurrection is the receipt of his payment. And the payment is what has canceled the debt that our idolatry, injustice, and oppression have incurred. And we may just for a moment be able to grasp this idea that we're forgiven, but that this idea that we're righteous, this, that we have everything now, all of the riches of Christ, this is something that we just can't get. We struggle because we can say, maybe I feel forgiven, but I don't feel whole and I don't feel rich. But this is where our picture of restoration is flawed again. We think that we will somehow feel like we have everything. Here's, here's the thing, friends, and we alluded to it earlier um, in worship, where we walk by faith until the day comes that we walk by sight. The Bible does not call you to feel like you are righteous, though you are. The Bible calls you to feel repentant and helpless. And you trust God through Jesus for everything. You are righteous. You won't always feel that way. You are forgiven. You won't always feel that way. You will feel sometimes the condemnation and the sting of the ever-present sin that still dwells within you. That will, be, that will loom huge in your eyes and you won't see Jesus. You'll see yourself. 
And that's why your feelings will always fool you. You need not trust in how you feel. You must trust in what God has done for you. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. There's nothing in there that says, I feel good and righteous today. It all says, I feel like I'm a mess and I'm clinging on to Jesus, believing that it's not my grip of him that matters, but his grip on me. And so we look to the mountain. We look to the place where our help comes. Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We're invited to know instead our repentant helplessness. Our future hope in this world is not that we're going to be evacuated but renovated, that we're seeing the seeds of renewal breaking into the darkness of life even now, that this is the great hope that animates us. And as such, we are called to rehearse our future into our present. All the ways that we groan, that we long, that we wait, that we wail. It is in all of these ways that we will more acutely long for Christ in the renewal of all things. Micah shows us this picture in verse 4. There will be no more reason to fear. They shall sit, every man, under his vine and under his fig tree. Those are not instruments of war. Those are instruments of flourishing and cultivation. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And so, friends, this is the question that we have to answer today because the picture, uh, the the promise of, of restoration is only as good as the promise maker. And the picture of restoration is not some sort of future far off time, but it's now. So how do we experience restoration? It's in what name of whose God do you walk? In what name of whose God do you walk? Micah said it in verse uh, verse 5. The people of the earth walk according to the name of their God. But see, friends, if you're in Jesus, God has placed his name on you and said you're mine. Our hope is there. Is that your hope? 